0: Good evening, and welcome
1: to all of you. Welcome
0: back to some of you who have been part of this conversation in this series. Uh, we, I hope you're here to learn some Talmud with me. If you're here for Greece, that's the next room over. Um, we are learning tales of the Talmud. Um, I'm going to give a quick sort of couple of words on the Talmud. Some of you may remember this from uh, the first session that we had. Uh, just a quick, what is the Talmud? So, The Talmud, you could think of as a collection of Jewish text and writing. It's the beginning of rabbinic Judaism. Um, Anyone who needs pens, we have a few over there if you want to write down anything. But the Talmud was the beginning of, as I mentioned, rabbinic Judaism. It's the first post-biblical set of Jewish text. It encompasses the early ones as well as later ones. And it runs from about the turn of the millennia, about the year zero, even a little bit before, the century or two before. And it runs... Well, where it exactly stops is a good question, but the theories are that the Talmud was redacted and finished somewhere between uh, six 700 CE or so. So it's the first several centuries uh, after the destruction of the Temple, where Judaism had sort of been thrown into turmoil by the destruction of the Temple. This previous uh, way of life and worship and relationship to God had really been disrupted. And so the Talmud is what you get with... The rabbis figuring out, okay, well, what is Judaism going to look like going forward? Uh, it's going to be a completely different thing than it was before when it was centralized, when it was around the temple. It was based out of Jerusalem. What is the Jewish religion, Jewish faith, Jewish practice, Jewish community? What is all of that going to look like in this new world? And so the Talmud is a lot of that enterprise, trying to figure that out. The Talmud is the longest written work in antiquity. It is four times longer than the closest written work, which was a book of uh, Roman legal codes. It is actually 63 volumes, so it is a huge written work. Um, It is so long because it preserves all the dissenting opinions. It's uh, a lot of legal material, a lot of discourse like this, but it preserves all of the different opinions, the majority ones, the minority ones, and everything else. Um, And so in addition, the two things that the Talmud are, one is legal material and that kind of prescriptive stuff, and the second thing is stories. Legends, uh, wisdom literature, and that's really what I'm focusing on in this series, the Tales of the Talmud. So we're looking at the stories of these early rabbis and their teachings, their, uh, all of their dealings back and forth and their conflicts and, uh, how it is that they work with one another and struggle against one another and their world that they're creating really in this set of texts. So this is all about these stories in this session. Today, so we read, over the last couple of sessions, this two-part story on the oven of Achnai. It was this long piece by which uh, we see this great rabbinic conflict over what the process is, what is the process by which rabbis are going to make law, and to what degree do they have authority to innovate uh, on God's word, on Torah, and all of this. So these questions of authority and what exactly this this work, this Talmud, this rabbinic enterprise is going to be, all of that comes out... In big ways, in that last story. So, if you missed it, I would encourage you to tune in to K iTunes to our podcast. Here, uh, there's iTunes. yes, on iTunes we have um, we have both of those sessions recorded, as well as the text from them. So, if you uh, you missed our previous stuff, uh, you're welcome to go back and uh, have a listen. So, today we're going to look at a really fascinating and really important character through the entire Talmud. This is Rabbi Akiva. Has anybody heard of Rabbi Akiva? Okay, so. He's a figure that people uh, people have generally heard of. He shouldn't be a total stranger here. Um, he is actually one of the early rabbis. He is one of the first um, in this rabbinic enterprise. Just this title of rabbi, he would have been one of the first generations to be carrying that. Um, and in many ways, he was part of laying the groundwork for what the entire Talmudic enterprise would be. His students were the ones that began to flesh it out and began to bring forth these arguments and these stories. Um, but he was really one of the progenitors of the whole thing. So we're going to read three shorter stories about Rabbi Akiva today. Uh, we're going to start on the first side of it. It says, Tales of the Talmud, Rabbi Akiva, that side with the title up top. We'll start with that side. And uh, I would love for us to do what we have been doing, which is this Hevruta-style learning. It's the traditional mode of learning for Talmud. This is actually the way in which Jews have been learning the Talmud for centuries, um, probably millennia, actually. Uh, it's this idea that you get together with one person, or maybe two people, and you read the text together and see sort of what comes out, what speaks to you, what uh, what jumps off the page to you. And uh, then you get together as a bigger group, and we'll discuss. So at this time, I would encourage you to turn to the person next to you. Um, even better bonus points if you didn't come with that person, if this is somebody you don't know so well, because that even helps uh, unpack what some of this is about. So, uh, So what I want to encourage you to do is read this first piece... This first couple of paragraphs, what were Rabbi Akiva's what were Akiva's beginnings? Um, read those paragraphs up until it says a vote de Rabbi Natan, which is the citation. So take a few minutes just to read through with the person next to you and see what comes forth. Alright. So has everybody had a chance to go over this story, just to have a quick read through? People have gotten to read... Okay, so this one's a little bit more straightforward. If you remember some of the twists and turns of last time with the oven, you remember the snake oven, right? Oh, yeah. Okay, so the snake oven is a little bit trickier than this. This We'll get through this, though. So, questions. What came up in reading these first just two paragraphs? Yeah, did you want to start us off?
1: A bunch of questions. All right, One good. One of them was, what possibly
2: of logic took him from water wearing away the stone to studying the Torah? Oh.
3: Good question. Uh, somebody <laughs> wants to answer. And then our
2: <laughs> second question was, okay, all of the debt, then all of the to top, then Leviticus. What happened to Genesis?
0: A great question. So <laughs> over here, um, this group <laughs> over here was not mentioned about Leviticus. One thing that's interesting about that book is that's the book with all of the laws, all of the impurities and impurities and sacrificial system and whatnot. So if you're going to get into Torah, that's a pretty dense way to do so. It's not like reading the stories of Abraham and Jacob or Joseph and his Technicolor dream code. These are sacrificial laws. Isn't it easier
4: to read this because it doesn't have all the deeper
0: meanings? It depends on which rabbi you ask. If you're applying this whole system of... Uh, of the different layers of meaning and extrapolating and all of that, that's an absolutely great point. It's like
4: reading the ma- manual of your car. <laughs> right. But if you put it all together, it's impossible. But if you read one sentence at a time, mm-hmm. it's pretty
0: simple. Reasonably so, although if you're thinking about him as being illiterate till he was 40 years old, you probably wouldn't give like grade school children car manuals to start out there trying to understand the English language. It's the same sort of idea. It's a reasonably complex place to start.
3: But isn't that traditionally the first thing taught to children? And tradition is Leviticus?
0: Depends on whose tradition. It is a it is a common uh, Ashkenazi tradition in Cheder and in uh, more orthodox circles to begin with some of those laws. Um, because you can wrap your head around them. Although, again, you would not do so without Rashi in uh, a lot of those circles. A medieval French commentator from 1100. Uh, because, again, it is complex and they wouldn't want you to get the wrong idea about it. Other questions or thoughts about this? Well,
5: I Um, thought that maybe that's the period when they were reading Leviticus that
0: he started. That could be too. Um, It doesn't say. This is early enough. This is really one of the early pieces, and it's early enough in uh, a lot of this story that it's a good question. Uh, When the cycle (laughs) of Parshiot began, when we began... Uh, putting those into sort of their set places is another question. So I will say this text, if you see the the um, citation at the bottom, Avot de Rabi Natan is actually a later text that gets uh, attached to Talmud. It's not one of the specific tractates, but it's a seen as sort of a meta-commentary connected to um, Pirkei Avot, if anyone's heard of that. Uh, it's a text from Mishnah. So it's a later text about a really early character, which is the interesting thing. So uh, the relation to the parsha of the week, yeah, it could have been. Uh, Bob, you had a, an interesting question.
5: Yes, uh, although you made a comment where you uh, referred to uh, Rabbi Akiva as illiterate. Well, not necessarily, because just because he hadn't studied Torah mm-hmm. doesn't mean he was illiterate. He just hadn't bothered to study Torah. He, Maybe he was reading mystery novels. I don't
0: know. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, but we
5: don't know. The teacher wrote it down. We don't know what he was what he was doing before. However, since the destruction of the temple, there were no high priests anymore. Mm-hmm. And uh, although he was late to the calling, the question comes up. Uh, we know from what we're reading that there were teachers. There was a schoolhouse. Right. There was a teacher. How did Akiva achieve the title, and who bestowed upon him the title of rabbi? Because <laughs> other people were were called teachers; they didn't weren't called rabbis. That's right. And they and they knew and they studied the Torah. He was just coming late to the party. Mm-hmm. So how did that come about? Since you said he was one of the
0: first mm-hmm. to be deemed to be a rabbi, as it were, so I want to let me take your first part of your question first. Why? Why did I say illiterate? Well, uh, traditionally, the rabbis read him as being illiterate because he's starting with the alphabet. In this, um, you, that's a good question. Perhaps he wasn't illiterate. Suppose he was fluent in Aramaic but not Hebrew or something. It begs the question because this was a possible reality for people in this time. The traditional rabbinic understanding, though, is that he was uh, illiterate because he's starting with the letters in that way. So this question of rabbi, where does that come from? Uh, that's a great question. So you mentioned correctly that with the temples, uh, the great temples in Jerusalem, the authority was invested in the priests. Uh, the Hebrew word for priest is kohen. So if anybody has the name kohen, that actually comes from that uh, construct. And then in addition... If anybody's aware of the system for Aliyot in traditional, uh, in Orthodoxy, even in conservative Judaism, the first two Aliyot are traditionally reserved for first a Kohen and then a Levites, who were, would have been, yeah?
1: But not a female Kohen, I found out. No. <laughs> well, yes. When uh, said, is there a Kohen in the house that Depen, I
3: Depends on? on the conservative synagogue. Yeah. Right. Definitely it, not an Orthodox.
0: Correct. There are these... Uh, Issues with gender equality uh, are very real even in this day, even where we get uh, the vestiges of this priestly system. So where did the rabbinic enterprise come in? Well, historically, uh, if you look at that era, right before the temple was destroyed, there were a lot of different kinds of Jews. Um, I have a... One of my rabbis from rabbinical school comments that it's actually kind of like today in that we have all these Reform and Conservative and Reconstructionists and the Orthodox and people with black hats and everything else, that it's actually sort of a comparable era to look at. Um at the time of the Mishnah, which is the very beginning of the Talmud, you have Assyrians, you have Sadducees, you have Pharisees, uh, there were these Sikari militants. Uh, there were a lot of different groups, and then there were early Christians too. So the group that became... Uh, the rabbis, were called the Pharisees back then. They were a little bit less directly involved with temple worship. The Sadducees were much more closely involved with the temple uh, rites. And as such, they faded in prominence with the destruction of the temple. The fact that the Pharisees were... Uh, sort of alienated and had their own issues with the temple, situated them such to sort of take on the mantle of Judaism in that way. They became, in the following centuries, what we call rabbinic Judaism. Uh, and they do so through this process. Um, this title of rabbi is a really interesting one. There are interesting cognates with uh, Babylonian titles, such as rebi and other words. Uh, a lot of them come from master. Uh, the other implication is teacher within this. So it's something between master and teacher. Uh, it's not a title that traditionally had political significance. When they talk about the political authorities of this time, they use different Hebrew words. Last time we talked about a character called um, Yehuda HaNasi, and this title of Nasi, that was actually the political title. Rabbi uh, implies a different kind of authority. Uh, it's more of a religious authority, a spiritual kind of authority, and it is closely related to teacher in that way. So that's a little bit on un- where rabbi comes from, but it doesn't come about until the uh, uh, evaporation of the priestly system. Yeah, Bert.
3: I wanted to get back to this water wears away the stone.
1: <laughs> yes. It seemed to bother you.
3: Yes. Uh, we, we were discussing that. Um, so they're looking at the mouth of a well, and there's mm-hmm. a stone with a hole in it. And the point is... That water wears away a stone slowly, drop by drop by drop after a long period of time. And in that way, at least in, in our in our discussion, that led... He says, is my mind harder than the stone? If the stone can be shaped, mm-hmm. then he's saying, so can my mind. And to shape it, you start with Aleph, Beit, Gimel, etc. Drop by drop. Drop by drop. Um, a rabbi who's name I absolutely forget and I apologize to him or her talked about life as uh, like a potter Mm -hmm. that we sculpt time and that's I'm not talking about our physical life but in our spiritual lives we are like sculptors and Mm -hmm. we wear away and we shape the stone second by second and minute by minute by what we do and how we live the same way the water ultimately wears away a stone Although we have less time, sure.
0: I think, um, Bert. I think you hit the nail right on the head with what uh, what is sort of the understanding of what he's saying here. What Akiva's voice is explaining. Why did he jump to that metaphor specifically? Well, that is the character of Rabbi Akiva in his uh, particular genius or uh, idiosyncrasy, if you want to say it that way. But this is uh, this is who he is. Understand.
6: Rabbi means teacher.
0: It means an interesting synthesis of teacher and master.
6: Okay. Now he said that Rabbi Akiva went to the teacher. Mm-hmm. But if he is so illiterate, how can he be a teacher?
0: So, again, okay. I want to... A
6: teacher of what? I yes. Say he could have been a teacher. And I, mean, I don't have to be. I'm a teacher <laughs> of man. I'm not a teacher of Ibu. It's I understand that. So, therefore, if I start with Hebrew, I have to start Aleph, Beb, uh, that I understand. Mm-hmm. But he is a rabbi or what?
0: So, I think the implication here, I mean, that's a very interesting direction to take it, is he a teacher of a different sort? <clears throat> the traditional uh, interpretation of this would be to understand that, okay, this is, who is talking here? Who is the perspective? Well, this is in Avot de Rabbi Natan, the chapters of Rabbi Nathan. Um, and so, as I mentioned, Avot de Rabbi Natan is a much later text. And so they're talking about Rabbi Akiva, who they already know as being this grand scholar. So they're probably putting that title in Rabbi as their honorific, as they are describing him Uh retroactively, if that makes sense. I don't think rabbi here is meant to be read that he was a rabbi at the time, but it's that the people who are describing really him understand. in Avota Rabbi Natan understand him that way. Does that make sense? That makes
7: sense. Yeah. So they're referring to him as the role he'll come into, not the role he was at the time. In they're sense referring
0: sense to sense. their understanding of said, him in their time. Instead
7: yeah. of being like, you know, uh, Laban <laughs> Akiva went and studied and then became rabbi Akiva. It just starts off with rabbi Akiva because by then... That's how he's known.
0: It would be like saying that um, President Obama did X, Y, and Z when he was in elementary school. Yeah. He wasn't <laughs> the president at the time, but that's this is our understanding of who he is in his title, in his role, and so forth. And so we, even though we're describing him in that phase, we still apply that title uh, based on our understand, our context. Um, are there other questions about this? P. Yeah, two more. Go ahead. Uh, well.
2: When we talk about him being illiterate or whatever. He mm-hmm. also doesn't have kind of sort of the common knowledge. He doesn't mm-hmm. know that looking at a
1: stone under a drip of water, he thinks it's manually hollowed out. So he doesn't know that either. Yeah. But part of it is he's. Uh, it's it's to show that even when you're as old as forty, you
0: can still learn. But mm-hmm. he has to be open to learning too. So he has to decide himself he's open to learning. Absolutely, I think that's a that's a great piece to look at here. Um, Yeah, that 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 beyond just Torah and beyond all of that, there is what to learn about the world. Um, And in that course of what to learn about the world, I just want to point something out to you. How is it that they know water wears away stone? Well, I put in a little footnote. If you look, it's Job chapter 14, verse 19. What we're seeing here is the rabbinic project. We're seeing the the construction of Talmud and knowledge... In the rabbinic sense, we're seeing them do what they do in a very transparent way. Well, how do you teach it to Akiva? Well, you cite Torah. You find some Torah piece that may not actually be contextually related, but you can sort of say it, and it fits into this context here, but that's the hook upon which you hang this knowledge. So this piece of citing Torah verses, even, you know, regardless of their own context in the Torah, but using that as your building block of understanding and knowledge, this is sort of the rabbinic enterprise right there, just having a quote. Um Ray and then Bert and then come to Mickey.
4: I was just going to say that might have been something that you were saying, that um, here's a beginning of the Talmud and, uh, here's, uh, like a clean slate, here's a rabbi who doesn't come floating in you know, on the Persian carpet of his experience in his mm-hmm. prior position, but he comes as a novice. That's mm-hmm. that. And, um and I guess the implication also is that as we want to learn, um, we can do a lot of learning coming with a with slate without experience.
0: That's right. Um, I picked this text in part because I find it very inspiring. This idea that you could be illiterate and in middle age and suddenly develop a mastery of Torah that would be, uh, well, it would be noteworthy for 2,000 years, <laughs> um, I think is very inspiring. Uh, I think there's something very beautiful about it. Clearly, Akiva is an exceptional guy, but this idea that it's never too late to begin um, some kind of an endeavor, it's never too late to embark on a new set of knowledge or practices or anything like that. I think Akiva proves that beautifully. Um, Bert and Mickey and then Mike, and then I want to get to the next story. Quick question. It says, it is said at the beginning. Yes.
3: Does that mean this whole thing is kind of like a story? That's right. Somebody is recounting it. So this doesn't pretend to be like an act it happened exactly this way. This is saying that people say this, or somebody say this.
0: Yes, that's right. So one other thing I'll say about the Talmud more broadly, uh, you oftentimes hear it called, you'll hear about the oral Torah and the written Torah. Hear about the written Torah, that's the Torah, that's like Hebrew Bible. The oral Torah is all of this. These originally started out as conversations. These were not originally written down. This was people debating and arguing and talking back and forth and whatnot. This originally was a discussion, and it wasn't until probably centuries afterward that it got written down, where somebody talked about their master who had said something else at a different time. Uh, you really feel the conversational uh, tone of it in that way. So, Bert, you're right to pick what? up on that.
3: And the other question was, what did the rabbis say about why he went to his son?
0: That's a good question. Um, he could have he just... just done it on his own. I think that a piece of that, first of all, you see their values in that. You see, one of their top values is this idea of education and transmission of Torah, transmission of these texts, and passing that along. That you don't go do this in a vacuum; you do this with other people, and you pass this on. Um, you see, sort of their values writ large. Uh, sort of underneath that, in that he embarks on this whole process with his son. In that way, learning the Big. Yeah, Mickey, and then Mike, and then unless we have anything else pressing, we've got a lot to, a lot of cool stuff here. So yeah, go ahead, Mickey. I'll,
1: I'll
4: talk fast. <laughs> It is written somewhere. Yeah. You shouldn't study Kabbalah until you're age 40, because you have to have the building blocks for advanced studies.
0: That's right. Uh, this age of 40 is a, a significant one in uh, the rabbinic imagination. Uh, I will say that Kabbalah didn't emerge as its own set of Jewish practices and traditions for another... Ooh, Probably seven to 800 years after what we're talking about here. But this idea of 40, uh, we get from the rabbis. It's this idea that at 40, you're sort of established. You are established in who you are and your practice and your craft. Um, all of these rabbis actually had jobs, which is interesting, um, to, to look at all of their different trades that they had. So. Uh it, it's a, there's a significance, there's a gravity to that number as well. Um Mike and then Tom. I was just
1: curious as a read this what Red Bay Akeem had been doing for his first forty years. He a shepherd, what he wasn't studying Torah. What was he doing?
0: So I think he was a woodworker, but I'm not positive offhand. Um but he a
1: sandal maker? I think that was
0: someone else. I yeah. think he may have been a woodworker. He he was common, some kind of a common man. Yes, he was a common man. His roots are not well known, like where he came from in terms of his parentage, or there's no Akiva dynasty that we know of. Um, and yet, yeah, he probably had some kind of menial uh, craft labor that he did. Um, Tom, yeah? I
4: was just going to say, about the age of 40, uh, this is an era where the life expectancy is somewhere in the 30s. So That's right, too. Under 40, you're a sage.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, or, yeah. Right.
4: If you survive to 40, then, you know, you're here. You're, 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 you know, mm-hmm. you've been around. So, uh, relatively speaking, and so he's ready.
0: That's absolutely right. And uh, 40 in the time that Rabbi Akiva would have lived, which would have been in and around the year 100, would have been, life expectancy would have been different then versus the year 6700 potentially, depending on where they were. And then also, it would have been different uh, in the, play- the centers in which. Uh, Kabbalah emerged, and them talking about 40-year-olds too, by the 1200s, 1300s, 1400s. So, it's an interesting number. Uh, you're right to, to keep your, to keep your eye on that, what that means at different times in terms of life expectancy and where one would be in one's, uh, life trajectory. So, unless there are any, yeah, go ahead.
2: It might have been written or said somewhere also that you're going to study, and re- with reference to the question asked about, why study with his son or whatever? Mm-hmm. But you should study in in groups or with somebody else, as we've done here a little bit, and and it's a conversation, not just something you do by yourself.
0: That's right. What so
2: life expectancy <laughs> at that time can be very
3: misleading because there was a tremendous amount of child uh, childhood death, yep. and so generally, if you live to twenty-five or thirty, the chances are you could live. A lot longer, but the average lifespan was a lot lower because of childhood mortality. Sure, another yeah. Go ahead. Very quickly, I love the idea of going oh, to study with the sun because
2: when you want to learn something, kind of have to, there
1: are a child's mind mm. and the enthusiasm of, of learning
0: young. Learn. That's a nice image there. That uh, blank, being able to open a blank slate in that way, and that that's a that's an ideal condition in some ways for some kind of learning. All right. Yes. Just kidding. <laughs> Thank God! All right. <laughs> yeah. Well, we have um, we have two more stories. The, uh, the, this next one is a little bit shorter. It's on the same page. It's uh, so don't flip over just yet. It's this short little piece. Um, this is a little bit complicated, and you'll see a new character introduced in this footnote. We'll get around to that conversation too. So get back together with your groups or pairs or threes or what have you, and discuss.
1: All right,
7: have folks gotten to read the next uh, few lines?
0: So if people have gotten to read over the next few lines, I assume there will be questions. There should be questions. That's a good thing. Um, that means it's all working right. Then we'll continue the conversation. So does somebody, yeah, do we have uh, questions? Why don't we start with that? Yeah, Stephen, did you have a, yeah, go ahead.
7: Well, um, typically these stories are kind of analogies, and we have to like figure out what what means what. Yeah. In this case, it seems like just either gossip or just reporting what's happening. <laughs>
0: yeah. Why is that? Um, that's an interesting piece. Uh, the, crisp, the extent to which sometimes it's one rabbi saying a series of events based on another one or what have you, sometimes it is just more linear narrative. Other times it does become more of a mystical story. Uh, that kind of quality to it. it really depends on sort of what the text is and what's going on in their conversation in that way. Um, but... Suffice it to say that this sort of narrative, just sort of laid out like this, is not, not unusual in terms of its storytelling. Um, who here has heard of Bar Kokhba? Yeah. All, all right, so I see um, some general having heard of this character. Um, does somebody want to tell a little bit about Bar We have a brave volunteer to tell a little bit about. Well, all right, Bert. I knew I was
3: right there. <laughs> oh, but there was, he lived in 150 or something. A little like bit there. before that. A little bit before that, 130.
0: He died in 135.
3: Okay, so it was in the early first century. That's right. C.E. and uh, there was a rebellion named after him. That's right. I believe people believed he was the Messiah.
0: That's right. I um, that's right, Tom. Yeah, did you want to add to that? The
3: context of
4: the time. Yes. Uh, This is the era of early Christianity. Yes. There's a lot of false messiahs running around. Yes, there are. This guy, for I think about six years, led a very successful rebellion, and the most successful uh, rebellion of any of the Roman provinces against Rome. A
0: little shorter than that, but yeah. But he, for about three years. Um, Three years? Yeah. That's right. It
4: took him that long to move some legions down from Europe. Uh, and, And that's. And that was the end of it, uh, and the destruction of the temple. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, this other guy's saying, You can't, you'll be, you know, grass will grow on your cheeks, you'll be dead, uh, you'll be on the underside of the grass mm-hmm. uh, by the time, uh, by this time the Messiah
3: shows up. So, Mickey, did you have something
0: you want to? Okay. okay, so hang on, um, Bert, and then yeah,
3: so I just is Akiba here saying? That he, he believes that Bar Kokhba is so
0: the Messiah? Not only is Akiva saying he believes Bar Kokhba is the Messiah, he's the one advancing that position. Akiva is the source of where Jews and many of these uh, uh, rebels came to believe that uh, Bar Kokhba was the Messiah. In fact, we see here Akiva giving Bar Kokhba the name Bar Kokhba. Um, his original name was Bar-Kusiba, Shimon Bar-Kusiba. And he gets renamed Bar-Kochva, which literally means the son of the star, because of this verse here. A star has risen from Jacob. So Akiva is basically laying the theological groundwork for Bar-Kochva, for this militant, to become the Messiah. I thought, uh, yeah.
7: So a um, thought I, I had sort of was with... Um... Rabbi Torta, when he goes, you know, grass will grow on your cheeks and the son of David will lie on the top. So he's saying you'll be dead and gone. But I also was wondering if that's sort of another one of those breaks you were talking about between the uh, priestly tradition and the rabbinic tradition, is that maybe there's a, a conception there for, for Torta that the imminent Messiah is an aspect of the priestly Judaism. And with the destruction of the temple and with the kind of scattering of or the... the, the you know, the sovereignty of the Jews under Roman em- uh, Empire that in this uh, rabbinic tradition that maybe the Messiah is not coming for a long time or possibly that the Messiah, the messianic prophecies are not going to be fulfilled.
0: So it's valuable here to put yourself in the mindset as best you can. So we're going to do it from two points. One would be the year 132 when the bar Kokhba revolt started. Um, this was a time in which, because of the Roman destruction, this cataclysm, this juggernaut of a military power had come in and essentially destroyed everything that people held to be eternal and immutable in the world. The result of that uh, is a certain kind of uh, apocalyptic set of literature. You see this in the Christian tradition in the book of Revelations and those um, very extreme kinds of visions. You see it in the visions of uh, Ezekiel. Uh, this kind of destruction and this very extreme uh, set of visions and violence that he understands and perceives. Um, the ASEAN group had their own set of apocalyptic literature. In addition to like prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah and whatnot, they had their own set of scrolls that chronicle the war of the sons of light and the sons of darkness in this coming apocalypse. So this kind of tone uh, was what was going on. This is where people's minds were. They saw the end of the world, the end of everything they understood. And so uh, part of that discourse took on these messianic figures, this idea that a charismatic or popular figure could rise and somehow destroy this military juggernaut that Rome had brought. Um, this idea of some popular figure rising up and uniting everybody and suddenly with divine blessing overturning the military oppression. This is a really popular idea. Um, Again, the Jesus figure comes out of this same era as well. This is another uh, figure that comes out of the Messianic time, although uh, one important distinction to hold is that uh, I don't know of traditions that hold Jesus as a figure as being anywhere near as violent as Bar Kochla. Bar Kochla, as we were talking about, uh, in the same, uh, in tractate Ta'anit here, the rabbis talk about how he actually murdered his uncle in cold blood because he wouldn't support the revolt. He had a number of Christians murdered who didn't see fit to join the revolt either. These were people who just wanted to sit out the conflict. And Bar Kokhba said, no, there is no sitting this conflict out, and had them killed. Um, he's a pretty controversial figure. He's a bloody figure. Um, that said, he was also militarily successful against Roman legions, which is, a, um, as Tom pointed out, a pretty unique thing in that time anywhere in the world. Uh, so now let's fast forward. We are talking about putting yourself in the mindset of it. Let's put ourselves in the mindset of several hundred years later when the rabbis are talking about this in the Talmud. Um, they have seen what comes of messiahs who arrive and say that we are going to bring this messianic era, we're going to change everything. Um, according to Cassius Dio, uh, the Bar Kokhba revolt resulted in the deaths of 580,000 Jews, the destruction of 50 fortified castles, and 985 villages or towns. What the Romans did in uh, response to Bar Kokhba's uprising was to essentially destroy uh, society that was there um, as effectively and as thoroughly as they could. So the rabbis, as you can imagine, have a certain kind of um, reluctance around Messiah figures uh, in, <laughs> in the subsequent centuries. They have seen how this endeavor goes. They've seen since then... Uh, the basically early Christianity become its own faith tradition. They've seen Constantinople take or Constantine take that on and they've seen some of the dangers of early Christianity even as a group. Um, so they are extremely wary of Messianic figures. They see that as a very dangerous uh, occurrence there. Tom? Um,
4: it's also true, I think, that, that the uh, early rabbis dealing with this uh, Scorched earth thing from the Romans. Uh, they're the ones that, that uh, determined what what became certified as scripture. Mm-hmm. So they took anything really military out of it. Uh, there's nothing to encourage the Jews uh, to become military again, anywhere, anytime.
0: Yeah, uh, very it's, little. it's a little complicated. So first, um, the question of what is canonized. Um, in terms of the canonization of like what books are in the Bible, I'll give one example. Uh, we celebrate Hanukkah, but the book of Maccabees is not part of the Hebrew Bible. It's part of the Catholic Bible. Um, you'll find it in Catholic Bibles, but you won't find it in a Jewish Hebrew Bible um, because it didn't make the grade in that way, so to speak. This question of what made it into the biblical canon and what did not is uh, it's a big question. The rabbis were clearly part of this, at least the early rabbis, but there's not a real transparent uh, answer or process that we can look to as to exactly what wound up in the Bible from an intellectual standpoint. Um, the So then there's this question of Jewish uh, or early, uh, yeah, Israelite slash Jewish slash rabbinic militarism or nationalism. Uh, the rabbis are clearly uncomfortable with it in some places, and in other places they really celebrate it. Hanukkah is a big example of them very much uplifting a certain kind of militancy, and yet then subsequent rabbis try and walk that back, and they transform that holiday to being about the miracle of the lights um, from being about a military victory. So you see you see that process in a very transparent kind of way, that ambivalence, that uh, concern about uh, what certain kinds of militarism and nationalism have done for the people uh, in the preceding centuries. So you're right to point that out. Other questions? Yeah, Jill.
2: So, I see that a star has
1: risen from Jacob is from Numbers.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: And then Akiva expounds that Kusiba has risen from Jacob, but I'm wondering what that star was that, what's another example other than this terrible person? What's another example of the star that has risen from Jacob since we were discussing we're all
0: descendants of Jacob? So a more contemporary reading of that line, a star has risen from Jacob, might be just that, that the people of Israel have descended from Jacob, that um, we are here today learning this text because we have come from this lineage of Jacob, from the tradition of Jacob. Um, It doesn't have to necessarily be messianic in nature. Does that make sense?
2: Right. Right. that a more contemporary interpretation? Like, why would Akiva say that Mm Kusiba is the star?
0: So he has a political agenda here. He wants to give theological underpinning uh, to a certain political reality. He wants to give a certain kind of, being a rabbi, so again, this master and teacher of religious and spiritual pieces, he wants to give a certain kind of stamp of approval to confer legitimacy on this uh, military uprising. He wants to, that this is sort of his, uh, his project in that way. And that's what's being laid bare. And we also see that not every rabbi agrees. In fact, other rabbis, this, you get the sense that Rabbi Yochanan ben Torta is laughing about that. He says, you're going to be six feet under before, and the Messiah so much as deigns to show up. Are you kidding that this guy over here with his rev- his revolution and all of that, this guy's the Messiah? Um, so it's a controversial thing. It's a very controversial thing. And where Akiva is trying to draw legitimacy is to pick out a verse of Torah, which is, again, I mentioned earlier in response to what Laurie had brought, that's the rabbinic enterprise that we're seeing here. Yeah?
7: So, because this came up, I mean, these questions came up a lot the last two sessions. When would Torta have been alive? Would you have been actually contemporary with Akiva? Or is this one of those things where you have a rabbi born 600 years ago saying something directly to a rabbi that, you know, a 7th century rabbi saying something directly to a 1st century rabbi?
0: That's a great question. Um, I'm not sure about the, uh, the time frame of Yohanan ben Torta. He's a pretty minor character. Okay. You rarely see him. Um,
7: that's a good question. It, it, it seems we read this as a hmm. very sarcastic comment. Yes. I think you are right to read
0: it that way. Yeah,
7: dead and buried by the time this happens. But I was thinking Mm -hmm. that if this was a contemporary, they were around at the same time, it could also be a very angry and vehement comment if he's saying, you know, you're casting us into a period of war based on a falsehood for your own political gain, Mm -hmm. that you're backing up with this religious text, but... You know, I mean, he could foresee that the Romans were not kind to people who rebelled against them. Right. This wasn't the first rebellion that Rome quashed by scorched earth. Right. You know, so I was sort of wondering about the chronology of that, because that could could change the, the the tone from that sarcastic uh, tone that Jews have evidently been holding on to for <laughs> millennia. <laughs> uh, or if this was a more of a Hemant, you know, decrying against this idea that uh, Baruchba is the...
0: I think it's probably both, actually. This idea that grass will grow on your cheeks is a little bit, um, you know, he's not just saying Mashiach is not going to come in your lifetime, which other rabbis have said. Yeah. He's doing it in a pretty cutting, like, caustic kind of way. Um, that you're going to be dead before this, actually, like pans out. Come on, man. Um, that tone of it, and at the same time, I'm sure there is stress and tension. In terms of whether Yohanan ben Torta was a contemporary of Akiva's, what I will say is that the rabbis, um, I don't know, it's a good question, and I would love to go check. And I will say that the rabbis don't really care. That that's, <laughs> that they're, again, we talked about this uh, over the last uh, sessions. It's very common in the Talmud to line up rabbis that did not live with one another, that could have been centuries apart, and have them arguing with one another. <laughs> because, as they say, their understanding of it, they say, Ein mukdam There's no such thing as early in Torah. They reject notions of historicity and uh, this idea that there is a linear temporal progression in Torah in favor of something that is uh, cyclical, that does have sages from different eras and different generations who had different chavrutas, all part of this one great big argument with one another. Um, that's sort of the way in which they see it from within the text. Um, but you're right to ask that question because that yields, uh, that yields <laughs> tremendous uh, perspective on it as well. So I said... Lori and Tom, Bob, Linda, hang on, Linda. You had you had your hand up for a little bit. Go ahead.
2: No, I was going to say what you just said. It does, the time doesn't necessarily make any difference
0: within the text itself. Yeah. They don't care. I'll put it like that. The rabbis who are having this conversation are not so concerned with who exactly lived I mean, when. That's part of the game. Right. It beautifully said. It is part of the game, so to speak. Lori. Well, our question was as an exercise in formal logic. Okay. formal logic, where mm-hmm. it is the fallacy of the false
1: consequence. Or sure. The, it is. And so what's the meaning of that? Is that, a, <clears throat> is that a typical uh structure of the story for the point? Because if he says, oh, a, a star is risen from Jacob, Kusiba is risen from Jacob, therefore Kusiba
0: is the star. That's the to, but that's a Sort of circular. <laughs> yes, um, this, the way in which they use Torah verses in this rabbinic enterprise, as I mentioned, they pull them out of context and they use them to fit, uh, what their agenda is. Uh, we read this story about the oven of Achnai, this snake oven, and the big punchline of that was, lo he." the Torah is not in heaven. Well, that's not exactly what it originally said in Deuteronomy. It was talking about giving the Torah to the people and it coming down from heaven. They, the rabbis <laughs> sort of lifted right out of its original context in order to use it for their rhetoric. So it's a combination of uh, logic isn't quite the word I would use. It's more rhetoric in some ways, um, the way in which they frame their arguments with one another. But the other thing I also want to point out is that this is not just the text saying this. This is Shimon Bar Yochai who is talking about this having happened. Um, So again, this is another layer removed from the actual events and this actual conversation. Um, Another thing you could look at is when Yochanan ben Torta says to him. Well, who's the him? Is he saying that to Shimon bar Yochai or is he saying that to Rabbi Akiva? The text doesn't say. (laughs) Yeah. It is that creative um, ambiguity that makes these stories. Yes, you're right. He says Akiva. Although, is he, in what way is Yochanan, uh, Shimon bar Yochai, sorry, uh, part of this conversation with Ben Torta? It's another, again, because they're not necessarily viewing one another as being in different eras. They're all at the same table together, as far as they're concerned. Tom? I'm just
4: wondering, uh, wasn't that part of the great uh, Sanhedrin that men and canonized, decided what to canonize, and so on? some years after the uh, Roman Reconquest. Uh, and if so, what did he have to say about the uh, messianic nature of Bar Kokhba then?
0: He didn't live to tell the tale.
4: Oh, he, he died in the Revolution? Yeah. I wasn't sure about he that.
0: He actually, there is liturgy on Yom Kippur that talks about the ten martyrs, and he's one of those ten. Um, he doesn't live to tell the tale in terms of this so own thing.
4: part of that conference?
0: No. Not the later one that convenes at Yavna, the whole Sanhedrin in the seventy, and yeah, yeah, he—that's a different enterprise. He he doesn't make it that far. Um, Was there another? Yeah, Bob.
4: What is the significance when Rabbi Akiva would see our kohpah? He would say that is King Messiah, rather than that is the Messiah.
0: So this, uh, right, King. So Messiah, this figure is descended in tradition, from King David, and is seen as a certain kind of king or having the legitimacy of one as well. So the formulation in Hebrew is, Melech HaMashiach, mm-hmm. the King Messiah. Like, that's actually what the text says in terms of that, is that where um, the
4: Christian thing comes from, the king of the Jews
0: and all that? That's a good question. Um, you know, I'm not in a position to answer that from within their own theological... Uh, Set of stuff. That's a really good question because you would be if you took on Jesus as that messianic figure. Is Jesus HaMashiach? But then also this construct of HaMashiach comes later um, in a lot of texts than Jesus necessarily. Uh, so there are a number of messiah figures. For instance, uh, the book of Chronicles, that's in the Hebrew Bible, refers to King Cyrus as Mashiach. King Cyrus goes and conquers the Babylonians, and after the destruction of the first temple, he lets the Jews come back from exile and build the second temple. And so they say, hey, this guy is a messiah. Um, messiah in biblical times, so in Israelite culture, does not mean what it means to us today in English. The term messiah is very powerfully colored with this Greek construct that we get later called Christos, Christ. Um which is not necessarily the same thing as these early Messianic ideas that are within Hebrew text. So I just want to put that on the table as well. It's
2: more of a generic term as opposed to something of grand importance.
0: It's more generic. However, in this Messianic era, it takes on certain kind of political and national and uh, military significance. But before that, it was more generic in Hebrew Bible. Um, So this is a little bit of some of the political activities of Akiva. Uh, with your permission, I would love to transition to the last story. This one I'm actually going to read through line by line because it is so sort of convoluted, whisking away through time and space. I'm going to read this, and we'll take it paragraph by paragraph.
2: Will you parenthetically say, you know, when it comes
1: to he, who he is, and who yeah, I can, <laughs> yes, yes, Seriously?
0: absolutely. So, Rabbi Yehuda said, "In the name of Rav." Another famous uh, important Talmudic rabbi who is a lot later. He's closer to the year 400 or so. He's one of the later uh, Talmudic rabbis. So when Moses descended on high, he ascended. found what ascended, thank you. He found the Blessed Holy One engaged in affixing crowns to the letters. said Moses, "Lord of the universe, who stays your hand?" So the question he's really asking, and I wrote at the bottom, is there anything lacking in Torah that these crowns are necessary? Why are you putting these crowns on the letters? He answered, God answered, there will, this is part of what makes this text challenging to read in the original. Um, I fill in some of the pronouns sometimes, but it's mostly all pronouns in the original. So one has to sort of follow the turn. So God answered, there will arise a man at the end of many generations, Akiva Ben-Joseph I name, who will expound many, many laws from each marking. Moses replied, Lord of the universe, permit me to see him. Any questions here? So we're on Mount Sinai. Moses is up watching God tying the crowns on the letters. And he asks, <laughs> why are there these crowns? And God says, well, this guy Akiva is going to come along, and he's going to have a lot to say about it.
4: Well, no, wait, 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 wait.
5: No. No. Yeah.
1: No. You said,
5: why is he writing, right? But it says, who stays your hand? "Stays your
0: hand is it a strange phrase. It is a strange
7: phrase. Does it mean
5: who... And ensures that you write, you write the clearly with right the right things? What is stays your hand?
0: My understanding of this, uh, and I get that this is sort of the traditional reading of this, is that that question, who stays your hand, is meant to be uh, why. It's a question of why are there these crowns? Who stays your hand okay. from um, finishing the Torah? You've already written the letters down, so why can't you just seal the whole thing and deliver it? Why? Who stays your hand uh, from being done with this? Why?
1: And yes. Is that is, in many generations, a wise person will pass laws. Yes. And how does that relate back to which the mitzvah and crowns? It doesn't relate.
0: Well, that is God's answer to it in this midrash, <laughs> Not that. in this Agagada, uh, this legend. So God says, "Well, the reason there are these crowns is somebody's going to come along and have an awful lot to say about it. This guy, way, way in the future."
2: It's like underlining something, maybe.
0: Potentially, yeah. Um, I think it's a little more subtle than that. Uh, like, I'm thinking about one of the sexy, words... more artistic. That too. There is an artistic quality, an aesthetic quality to it, and um, sometimes it'll just be one letter in the middle of a word. Uh, so why does the iron have a crown on it? It's a good question in some ways. So, so Moses says, Lord of the universe, God, I want to see this person who has all these laws and makes all this stuff based on these little crowns on the letters. So God says, turn around. Moses turns around and is magically, majestically, <laughs> mysteriously whisked through time and space centuries forward um, to Rabbi Akiva's Beit Midrash, Rabbi Akiva's uh, study hall. It just says in the text, he turned around and then sat sits down eight rows behind, and it just says he sits down like eight rows back. So Moses had no idea, and listen to their legal arguments, this is what's... We're meant to understand. I filled that in. Moses had no idea what they were saying, and he became distressed. That sort of makes sense. If you imagine Moses in his time having crossed the Red Sea, he goes to this place, and they're talking about this Torah that he's about to receive, and they're talking about halakha. What on earth does that have to do with crossing the Red Sea and receiving the Torah? So Moses becomes distressed. But when they came to a certain subject, the disciples said to the master, How do you know this? The master being Rabbi Akiva. And he, Akiva, replied... It is a law given to Moses at Mount Sinai, which is where Moses is in sort of real time in this story. Thus, Moses was comforted.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: that's an interesting, yeah Ebenezer Scrooge quality to it. Yeah, Bob.
5: At last week's services, there was a little blurb handed out that said, "What Reca's constructionist view is that the commandments really." didn't come down from Mount Sinai, that it wasn't as Charlton Heston did Mm -hmm. brought him down, but that it was a compilation over a period of time and that this one magic moment of Moses bringing him down didn't occur quite that way under one Reconstructionist view. How do you marry that with this?
0: That The view you just uh, offered is the contemporary scholarly perspective on this, that we have – there is no archaeology that indicates somebody named Moses to us. We don't have um, that particular set of archaeological finds or have possessed them. Um, That's different from the rabbis from the year four or 500 or so, sort of wrapping their heads around what – what happened at Mount Sinai? When Moses goes up there, we read in the Torah, Moses goes up there, what was going on up there? Um, and sort of, that's sort of what we're seeing here. We're seeing the world of the rabbis. We're seeing their perspective. We're seeing um, what's on their minds, what they're thinking about, what puzzles them, what stresses them out. Um, we're going to see more of that very shortly in this story. Uh, two questions. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, but
6: well, what I understood is that uh, Moses came down with the tablet and the Ten Commandments. That's
0: Where the, Torah to? the Torah is revealed to the Jewish people at Mount Sinai through Moses at, um, at, uh, Shavuot. That is when we honor that, the revelation of it. I know, but
6: he didn't bring down the Torah. He brought down the
0: tablets. We get the physical piece of him bringing down the tablets, yeah. uh, midway through. Uh, tradition tells us that Torah is revealed to Moses there. And so Moses is the one that puts this all together, or God wrote it and Moses transmits it. Um, sort of what you theologically believe in terms of that transmission um, goes a long way in terms of determining whether you are conservative or orthodox or... Yeah,
6: but then Moses broke
0: the, t- the t- So the crown went, the, went away. That was when the ten... He heard, so the
6: crown went? When he in the, the, <laughs> the, the Torah doesn't
3: include the story of the Torah being written
0: down. Right. The Torah is also bigger than the Ten Commandments. The Torah, I mean, that's just one piece, and if you look at the Ten Commandments, um, they have crowns too in some of those letters. So whether or not that would be an interesting midrash to consider, did the tablet of the Ten Commandments, those tablets originally have crowns on them? Excellent question. But
2: the Torah... Essentially, was an oral form for many years, so it wasn't written down at the
0: time. A lot of tradition would tell us that, that right. the Torah was given by God in that way. Um, so what form did it take? Where did these crowns come from? Well, the rabbis, we can say they exist in a time in which Torah is definitively laid out in this very written form that they see, and they have these crowns already in their tradition. So those same crowns, they're talking about those crowns 1,500 years ago. Um, so it's pretty set in their imagination that they imagine that God is engaging in a written form of it on Mount Sinai, if that makes sense. God is engaging with the Torah as they have it um, Yeah, go ahead.
7: So my question is about Moses' uh, confusion because it says he, has, he had no idea what they were mm-hmm. saying. Yeah. Um, so my question is actually about the language. I know that the Torah has relatively few uh, relatively low diversity of words as far as a language is concerned. Would the actual vocabulary of Hebrew at the time have expanded to the point where Moses literally had no idea what was being said? Or is it that the subjects they were discussing were these laws and concepts that were so futuristic and anachronistic to Moses that he was confused? Because I'm wondering if if there's actually already been such a change in the language Mm -hmm. that Moses really doesn't even recognize words that are being used.
0: So it's important to remember that Aramaic is also... Uh, a language in use uh, at this time and, and, so and it and could be like linguistic
7: would not have been familiar with uh, would, have you, been, would have not known necessarily
0: that's right um, what they're thinking about if they're thinking about it in terms of language yes they're talking in a language that is different from uh, Torah Hebrew that original like Israelite biblical Hebrew um, even by the early Mishnah which is the very beginnings of the Talmud the sentence structure and syntax is radically different yeah um, the sentence structure actually much more closely mirrors uh, Greek and other Western kinds of languages. When I first started learning Hebrew, I could speak Hebrew fluently, and I could understand Mishnah very easily. This is before rabbinical school. And I could read a biblical sentence, understand every word in the sentence, and not understand what the sentence was saying Yeah, because um, the syntax was that different.
7: So, so Moses really was so far out that he might not have even necessarily recognized these people as the Hebrew, the Israelites' surrounding. It, Entirely possible. Israel, well, I, or leading into Israel. It could I be know.
0: concepts, it could be language, it could be either way. The text, uh, it it leaves it ambiguous for that creative point. Yeah, Bert?
7: No, just, I
3: read this conceptually, not mm-hmm. in terms of the language. I mean, he's here he's looking ahead, whatever, it was 15, 1,500 years, 14, 14, 1,500 years, and by that time things had evolved to such an incredible Point that he didn't even recognize what they were talking about, or the context they were talking about. Here they were in a midrash, and you know, he he was a a man of Egypt and of the desert, and that he just didn't. I mean, it had evolved to such a point that he didn't understand it. But then he was comforted when they said it was all coming from him.
0: Yes, that's right. so I would say, certainly the co- the topics would have been different. Probably the language, too. I would say all of the above in that way. But I guess he knew enough of the language to catch that this is uh, uh, to Moses, LeMoshem et Sinai, from Mount Sinai, in that way.
3: But he, Moses was obviously impressed. Impressed. As we see by the next paragraph. You
0: know? Yes. So, uh, other questions, or should we continue in the story? All right, we'll continue. So, at this... Moses returned to the Blessed Holy One and said, Lord of the universe, you have such a man, and yet you gave the Torah to me. He says, so you've got this guy who unpacks what the crowns mean and all that, and yet you're giving the Torah to me. Why Moses? Why me? He, God, replied, be silent. This is my decree. A more faithful translation might actually be shut up. It's a very <laughs> it's a very abrupt, um, aggressive silence. Kind of response to it. Um, it's fairly striking in the text. It's it, it's an imperative form of it grammatically. Uh, Moses continued, "Lord of the universe, you have shown me His Torah. Show me His reward." God replied, "Turn around." We get this same, the exact same language as earlier when God says, "Turn around to see who the guy is." God says, "Turn around." Moses turned around and saw them weighing out his flesh in a marketplace. Lord of the universe, Moses cried out, Such Torah he had, and this is his reward. God replied, Be silent, this is my decree. <laughs> who is this? Who is what? <laughs> his Torah. It's not the God Torah. Sorry? He's talking
6: to God. Yeah. Yes. And why does he say his Torah? Right. Who, who is his?
0: And when he says his Torah is so great?
6: Yeah. What is his Torah?
2: So like his teacher. Right. Yes. Yeah. So his Torah,
0: they use, in the Talmud, they use Torah to refer to learning or teaching. They use that in addition to the five books. Um, you could think of that as Torah with an uppercase T versus Torah with a lowercase T, the teaching of. But who is
6: this? Akiva. 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 And his reward is Akiva reward. Yes. Yes. And the...
0: Yes, this is Akiva's body that he has found, come upon in this market. So this is, Tom, you mentioned did Akiva survive? No Akiva did not survive. He was one of these ten who were martyred by the Romans, and so this vision that Moses sees is the Romans basically with his dead body after the fact. That's what this uh that's what the implication is here. That he was torn to pieces. Um so fairly grotesque actually piece in that way. Um, and it's abrupt, God's response to it. This, be quiet, this is my decree. That's just how it is, God.
4: Yeah, <laughs>
0: that's right. Uh, so, questions all around. Yeah, go ahead. Um, I don't know, why does Moses find it confusing that God has given the Torah to him, if a key, and not Akiva, if Akiva's born many generations in the future? So, that's a really good question, because I guess Moses, in his mind, thinks that, okay, that this guy is so much greater than me, uh, that... We should throw off again the temporality of it. Um, again, to return to that concept of there's no ain There's no such thing as early in it. Um, the rabbis are imagining Moses has their same concept of there's no such thing as temporality. The timing doesn't matter. The Torah has always been eternal. It's always been there. It always will be. So they say, okay, well, why why didn't you send it with this guy instead of me in the first place? So again, this is them. You're seeing them really diminish the idea of. Time in a linear sense—they're just not bothered by it. <laughs> so that's a good question, though, because you would think that that's really important to the sequence of events. But to the rabbis, again, they, they don't look at it in a linear fashion. Yeah, go ahead. So
7: I always, always sort of had the sense of Obos that he was always sort of a little down So he had the stutter. He always that's wanted right. Aaron to present everything to the people. He wanted Aaron to intercede with the Pharaoh. So it, it kind of seems like he's looking for any way out of being the person <laughs> made <it> to the <laughs> people and that God is incredibly displeased with this with his response of be silent. Yes. You know, it's like you're trying to weasel your way out. You tried to weasel your way out of it at the bush. You tried to weasel your way out of it with the Pharaoh. And here you are again trying to weasel your way out of it. Yeah. And I've chosen you and you keep questioning me and this is unacceptable. That's right.
0: That's right. So the rabbi's version of Moses that we're seeing here is a version that really does jive. Like, they had paid attention to who this Moses character is, who wants nothing to do with this whole um, Exodus enterprise and this whole Revelation business. Um, he does consistently try and weasel his way out of that whole thing. He is not wanting to be part of that business. Um, so you're right. And the rabbis seem to have picked up on that in a very big way in their uh, portrayal, the way, that they, uh, the way that they illustrate Moses here. Um, that's a huge piece of it. Linda.
2: I have a question yeah. about the timing of the Talmud. Yeah. At what point is it, being, is it finished?
0: There's no solid answer for that. I I will mean,
2: I've, s- I've always wondered why it doesn't continue. The writings and the commentaries of the Talmud and other public things and other uh, kinds of uh, written things as well. Why are there no contemporary writings on it uh, I'm sure people study it all the time and have questions and whatever, but why it's not um, canonized into the, or whatever the right term is, into the, the writings from centuries before.
0: I would suggest that it's a host of cultural and societal reasons that change the voice of Jewish text at certain points. There is a point at which, uh, I mentioned, we talked about the canonization of biblical text. Right. There's a point at which Those who see themselves as part of that Israelite project stop writing in that voice. So we have the wisdom of Ben Sirach, and we have the book of Judith, and we have other books that didn't make it into the canon, but they're still written in that same voice and that same perspective. They read like Hebrew Bible. At a certain point, and I think I would make the argument that it has to do with the upheaval of those centuries, the destructions of so much of what was the Israelite way of life and relationship with God, uh, the rabbinic enterprise emerges and it has a different voice. They begin talking about themselves. If you look at books of the Bible, they don't say who wrote them. It's not totally transparent like it is here where they're having a conversation. Rabbi Yehuda said in the name of Rav. There isn't that kind of uh, self-awareness in biblical writing that there is in rabbinic writing. Uh, by that same token, with the onset of the medieval era, the Talmud is closed, essentially, Uh, There are two Talmuds, and we were talking about this. There's actually a Talmud that was written more in exile in Babylonia, the Babylonian Talmud, and then there's the Jerusalem Talmud that was written more in and around the land of Israel. The contemporary understanding is that the Babylonian Talmud was redacted and closed much later than the Jerusalem Talmud. You can tell from it linguistically. I can attest to this. If you look at the Jerusalem Talmud, it is much more difficult to make sense of. You can tell that someone has been in there cleaning up and modernizing the Babylonian Talmud. The question is when. Well, there's no clear answer to that. When was it redacted? There's a sort of final voice in the Talmud that is sort of the voice of the narrator. And this voice is transparent. It doesn't say who it is saying it. Um, They call it the Stom, which means the just is, the plain thing that is. Um, And so this question of when the Stom went and redacted that written work and it became a closed thing, that's a good question. We know by... 800, 900, 1000 that it was definitively closed because we have all of these rabbis in those eras talking about it as a closed set of uh, works. We have Maimonides, we have Rashi, we have all of these other rabbis commenting on it as a closed enterprise. So that's what I would say about the Talmud and when it was closed. Was that? There's a big spread of time between these from one, which is Moses. And then you have these people, they come away after
2: Moses. That's right. That's my thought is that, I mean, There's a lot to learn from all of this. Mm -hmm. But there are brilliant minds that have come since, Mm -hmm. and there should be a lot to learn from them as well.
0: It's the reason that, uh, for instance, Rashi, if you look at a contemporary Talmud, you'll see these notes in the margin. They're always the ones closest to the spine. That's all Rashi. He went and memorized the entire Talmud and then gave his commentary on the entire Talmud, and that became sort of redacted into it such that now you, it's hard to buy a Talmud. You, well, you really can't buy a Talmud that doesn't have Rashi in the middle. He's considered part of the endeavor. And there are other more contemporary voices that are now written below the line. If you get a uh, contemporary Orthodox Talmud, you'll see them explaining, "Okay, here's the law as it's laid out there." Well, the law that we have now is a little bit different, okay, and well, that's here's
2: where basically
3: that basically what I was asking. Yeah.
0: So, I, 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 so we're, yeah, we'll make our way around Judith and then Burton, and then, yeah, hang on. So yeah, go ahead. Go ahead.
1: these mm-hmm. philosophers, around sixteen
5: hundred, guess, maybe no.
6: What's the, in
0: Spain? Ostensibly, yeah.
1: Was it,
6: it? It would been,
0: I would have guessed Cordoba as well, or Toledo, one of those centers of. Yeah uh tolerance between Jews and Muslims uh, and great peace and learning together. Um it's true. Jerusalem has streets like that too actually. They,
6: they the Muslims at the same time they the Jews. That's right.
0: It's interesting I had no idea they kept the street names. Um but Jerusalem retains Yeah, but in Jerusalem if you look at the Jewish quarter of the old city, it retains a lot of these names so you will see a Rashi street, the French rabbi from the year eleven hundred ish or so. Um you know, Bert, yeah. I I, I just find this so disturbing. Yes. This text. <laughs>
1: we, I, I don't
3: think we can leave it without dealing with. At least for me, as a martyr yes. yes. Basically, Akiva was brilliant. Yes. Akiva ends up being tortured and killed.
0: He was martyred by the Romans.
3: With martyred, with his skin torn off.
0: That's in the Yom Kippur liturgy.
3: And Moses. Says Moses complains to God and says he was so brilliant and this is his reward and God says shut up.
0: <laughs> you know, this is
3: the way it is. I mean, in a post-Holocaust world this is very difficult. Forgetting about the anthropomorphic language mm-hmm. which I'm not comfortable with. Mm-hmm. But that whole idea is very, very... It's very difficult and very troubling mm-hmm. that if we say God is good... And that's the old thing: if God is good, why do bad things happen to good people? Mm-hmm. But this is very, very much in the extreme. So and the, I don't have an answer. It's just really disturbing, and I didn't want to let this go without saying. Nor I'm should disturbed. we. I oh, am. Yeah. Nor should it's we. A feels, but but the, the rabbis.
6: He calls that is a reward.
3: But it's not a reward. Yeah, he, he calls that's it a reward. What he
6: calls the reward. Yeah. yeah. So For being so so knowledgeable the, is a reward. Is the. Is to
0: be tortured, is to be, to be had, and killed. Or, so, a piece I of
3: Akiva said that his reward was he could say the Shema before he died.
0: So, the rabbis do tell this story of that Akiva died with the Shema on his lips, his lips and died in happiness. Actually, um, the rabbis convey that Akiva actually died happy. Um, a piece of the complication of this is that the rabbis understand that life is complicated. They don't live and they don't see themselves as living in a world in which. Torah is this wonderful, magical thing that makes everything better. They live in a world of complexity. They live in a world of black and white. They live in a world that has been devastated by Akiva's theological underpinnings of messianism. There is another piece that I didn't bring in that talks about Akiva wanting to line up terrible punishments for people for all kinds of things halakhically. Akiva is seen as a brilliant person, but also a very severe person and a really dangerous person. Um, Akiva is a very complicated figure in and of himself. Uh, a piece of what we're seeing is the rabbis, amb- not ambivalent, yeah, ambivalence. Not in the sense of, uh, indifference, but in the sense of multiple valences, that they have multiple perspectives on Akiva. Clearly he is a brilliant scholar of Torah, and a powerful figure in Jewish legacy, and, um, revolutionary voice of Torah, but he was also incredibly dangerous. Uh, there is no mistaking that. The rabbis are at home with that too, and they are at home with the idea that Somebody can be very brilliant and be very powerful and bring Torah that, uh, as the rabbis say, the fact that they're talking about his body should tell us that his legacy has already progressed. All that the Romans could do was to do something to his body. They couldn't do anything to his Torah. His Torah was so powerful, and it resonates through the past 2,000 years. The Romans could do nothing to that. So there is a piece in there that they talk about his body in there. The rabbis mean for you to see just how limited the Romans were in terms of what they could do to a Kiva or to the Jews or to the Torah and the teaching of Torah. The rabbis see themselves as having been decimated by the Roman project and yet their Torah lives on. This rabbinic project lives on. It is disturbing and there is a horror to it, and it's also the world in which they live. And they weren't shy of being of holding the complexity of that. Uh so many hands are in here, yeah, so why don't we start from this side? Go ahead.
2: But when it is very disturbing that he mm-hmm. said, shut up, be silent. Is, <coughs> is it possible, is it possible mm-hmm. that, that God is not saying, um, this might my free that a king would be, you know, tortured or whatever, but he's saying that being silent
0: That is entirely possible. Um, in fact, that's the way most rabbis read it, is that... Um, you need to be silent. Like, you, like, stop. It's not your place to ask that. It's not Moses' place to interfere in Jewish uh, consciousness and history in that way.
6: But on in
2: initial reading, don't we think of it as that it was God who allowed it to happen?
0: So this is what the rabbis struggle with. This is what people struggle with in the contemporary sense uh, in terms of post-Holocaust theology is how do we relate to God? What is the meaning of being Jewish today and being part of this peoplehood and also being part of this tradition uh, when terrible things have happened? It's something that we, if we are to be honest with ourselves, are called into to sitting with and being present with is both the beauty and the richness and the depth of this transmission and this chain that comes to us. But then also, how do we make sense of that which has been horrifying? We see the rabbis working on it in this text. This is their attempt, a rabbinic attempt, to deal with uh, that which they have found horrifying, that which they have, like, the destruction of much of which they have experienced. It is not a clean or an easy thing for them, but they don't shy away from it. Uh, Mike?
1: When I read a book or see a sporting event has an unacceptable outcome, mm-hmm. my memory has changed, and I decide... If, we won. I think the word "reward" is is misconstrued or mm-hmm. misinterpreted, and I'm sure that the rabbis say, rather say, show me the reward, God, that you gave to this wonderful man for all that he did. Mm-hmm. What if that's outcome or end? Or how did his life go on? I can't believe that this is construed. Yes, and I, as the Lord, rewarded him by having him flayed and you know. For right. The rabbis. the
0: rabbis are dealing with their. They have profound sadness at what happened to those ten martyrs, at what happened to Akiva. They are tremendously sad that the great visionaries of their era um, were did not, in fact, survive some of this endeavor, um, the Roman endeavor. And again, the connection to that which is political is uh, inescapable. They are fully aware of Akiva's role in the Messianic movement, and they are deeply uncomfortable with that as well. Uh, there is a lot that is challenging in this. And yet at the same time, they find themselves inspired by Akiva. And they find themselves inspired by him learning Torah at the age of 40. Um, he's a complex figure. He's a tremendously complex figure. And it is disturbing and it is inspiring. And he is uh, troubling. He is dangerous in that way. Uh, a piece of why I bring this is not to say that this rabbinic endeavor, this Talmudic endeavor, is essentially a set of Aesop's fables that the rabbis lay out for us just to sort of sit with. Uh, what I find really powerful about this is the way in which the rabbis are able to very beautifully and artfully through this form of midrash, through their telling of their legends and their stories, they deal with what is really troubling and really horrifying and what they struggle with, and they deal with it head on. They aren't afraid to engage with the issues of their time and they aren't afraid to wrestle with it and struggle with it and own how it sits with them. There is something incredibly uh, powerful to me about their genius in dealing with their own era and their own struggles in that way. Um, but no, it's not an easy piece. And no, it's not uh, black and white either. There's a complexity to Akiva as a figure and the way in which they deal with him that's challenging. Yeah.
7: So I have uh, two comments. One on the, the concept of this being his reward is that what I'm seeing is that, you know, yes, Akiva's being killed and, and out, but he's also being immortalized. I mean, again, 2,000 years later, we're sitting in a room talking about Akiva. Mm-hmm. So it's not that his reward was being killed, it's that his reward was being immortalized by the Romans in their act of killing him. Because that idea of being a martyr, when you kill someone in a religious, when you martyr someone, mm-hmm. you extend their legacy. Mm-hmm. You turn them into a person that an entire culture can rally around.
0: They become larger than the, sequence, than the of sequence of events when they were alive.
7: The the other thought that I had, and this was a sort of darker thought, is that uh, a couple of times in the in the Torah, when mm-hmm. the Israelites do something to displease God, mm-hmm. his punishments are sometimes very extreme, and not necessarily punishing the person who displeased God. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm almost seeing, I, I saw a connection between Moses' uh, being sort of upset that he's the one receiving the Torah and not mm-hmm. uh, it being given to Akiva, and that perhaps God, there's some sort of, again, out of time punishment of Akiva for Moses' doubt. Mm-hmm. Because Moses, the, the, there is punishment <laughs> bestowed upon, upon the Hebrew people because of Moses' doubt elsewhere as well. Right. So if Moses doubts his own ability and says, this man's the great scholar, why are you giving me the Torah? And God says, well, if you don't want the Torah, this is what will happen to great, this is what happens to the great scholars who aren't you because you're, maybe because you're not so willing to accept it. So could there be some sort of conception that, that Akiva's punishment is
0: connected to connected Moses' to Moses's
7: issues? The
0: rabbis may have had that understanding. That's entirely possible. Um, Again though, the rabbis do view Akiva in his death as being holy. They die they view Akiva that the last thing he says is the Shema. They view him as having sanctified the name of God. There is sort of in the rabbinic imagination, there's no higher um, way to depart this world, so to speak. So they actually, yes, what has happened to him is not something that any one of us would certainly choose for anyone, any of ourselves or anyone we know. Um but they're also holding Akiva in incredibly high esteem. They see him as one of the holiest uh, rabbis that existed because of that. So the fact uh, this piece about um, him in the marketplace may be intended to rattle Moses. That may be a device that was supposed to grab Moses by his lapels and say, hey, wake up. Um, even though the rabbis actually have a very... Uh, lofty and exalted view of Akiva, even though he was also a very dangerous character in a political sense. So he's very complicated, and the way in which the rabbis sit with him is very complicated. So um, I recognize we are a few minutes over. I'm happy to continue talking. Um, So, but for those who uh, have to be on their way, I wanted to just, and like I said, I'll stay here to answer some questions and talk. I wanted to offer this as a way in which the rabbis are willing to live with characters in their own midst who are larger than life, who are holy, who are incredible, and whom they respect and love, and who are also human beings, who can be uh, politically problematic, who are difficult. And this is the way in which they sit with events that are challenging. In this, uh, there is a tremendous complexity to it. It is not... Uh, a story of sunshine and rainbows, necessarily, but there is a lot to admire within Akiva and who he is and his legacy and his Torah that we are still talking about two thousand years later. So, I want to offer this uh, in the spirit of the rabbis really dealing with the world around them in ways that are very com- that are very complex and that do justice to the great complexity and the black and white of the world or the gray areas of the world in which we live today. So in that way, this is a very contemporary text. This is a text that does not shy away from what is complicated, what is challenging, and what is troubling. And so in that spirit, uh, I would suggest that our own finest Jewish voices and writers live within the spirit of the rabbis when we engage with the world as a challenging place, within tikkun olam, within trying to make the world a better place and not shying away from that which is challenging. So I want to offer that uh, in going forth with this particular rabbinic tale. We'll uh we'll learn more rabbis next time. Um and like I said, I'm happy to stay here and talk a little bit more.